0: So thank you, Fran, and thanks very much for the uh, opportunity to talk with you today. Uh, I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound probably hokey to you, but I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Every time I get a chance to make a presentation to a group like you, uh, pediatricians, and pediatricians in training, and I think, as I look at you, how many lives of children you're gonna touch over the course of your career. And if I could be of some small assistance uh, in that project of yours, it would be extremely gratifying. So I mean that sincerely. So I appreciate your coming today and I hope you find this of some use. So the first thing i like to start with, and I'll try to run through these slides very quickly so we could have time for questions, is that I always like to acknowledge that this is not uh, really my work. It's the work of a lot of people that I've been privileged to be associated with. These are folks from uh, Baylor College of Medicine, mainly in pediatrics, but in a variety of subspecialties. Uh, and colleagues, including Ching, who moved on to other institutions, who have helped in the formation of what you're about to hear. So let's begin. So physicians lead in a variety of settings at the. Do you hear something?
1: <laughs> Hold I guys. It's OK. <laughs> am, I being, am I
0: being followed again? Uh, okay. Lead in a variety of settings at the bedside in organizations and society in general. So patients, colleagues, organizations, lots of people turn to physicians uh, and depend on physicians to lead. So but the question is, where do physicians acquire these leadership skills that they are so much uh, looked to for. So here's the goals of the presentation. To define leadership as applied to medicine, medical education, describe some key features of this awkward term, reflective practice and leadership uh, as an educational model, and describe how these methods might be applied uh, to fit various constraints and learning targets for groups. So some background that you all already know, that physicians encounter very technical, uh, complicated situations, but they're complicated, not just in technical (coughs) dimensions, but in psychological dimensions, in social dimensions, and in institutional dimensions, lots of layers. Knowledge and skill are required to guide people through these situations, and it's this guidance function that we focus on in terms of the leadership dimension of the physician's role. So, leadership's a concept that's been uh, studied and thought about for uh, millennia, uh, thousands of years. And if you, uh, let me give you one definition for you to consider. You can read that, leadership's influencing people by providing purpose, direction, motivation while operating to accomplish a mission and improve the organization. This is just one sample, but it's sort of a classic definition. It's from the U.S. Army field manual. But the same things are repeated uh, across most definitions. And that, for me, there's a core of all these definitions, and that is leadership has a primary purpose or a function. It's not really a position, if you will. It's a function. And that function is to address a need, a problem, a threat, or a challenge that requires more of a group than just maintaining the status quo. And by the way, the book that's referenced here, if you have to read anything about this, if you had to pick one thing, I would read this book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. It's written by Ronald Heifetz. He was director of the Harvard School of uh, uh, the leadership program at the Harvard School of Government. Excellent book, and it's half about physicians' work. So physicians acquire leadership skills, and again, this is what you know, primarily through modeling, watching other physicians, but it's implicit in a hit or miss operation. Another factor is that advanced medical education is really an apprenticeship where the primary models uh, that are experienced are seasoned physicians. They're looked to by medical students, residents, and fellows. They're the primary models. So here's the problem. that The artistry of seasoned expert physicians is clearly visible as you watch them manage these complicated situations. However, the skills that underpin that artistry are not visible to learners. But We think that they hinge on the same form of reasoning that underpins expert clinical reasoning and judgment and that the skills can be learned. So the question is, what sort of methods can help physicians develop these sort of crucial skills? And here's our approach. This is our premise, uh, that that physicians are well-schooled in a scientific approach to those complicated biological situations. But often lack formal educational opportunities to reason through other complex dimensions, as we mentioned, in a systematic way, including understanding their own role in these situations and particularly the impact and management of the function of strong emotions as a component. So, our hypothesis is that physicians can grasp these other kinds of dimensions if they are given opportunities to practice analyzing them using essentially the same tools that they use to analyze complicated biological issues. So here's our principles, and they should look very familiar to you. involves a disciplined examination of reasoning, making reasoning explicit and open to review and critique by yourself and others, and then modifying practice according to what's discovered. And for me, the tumor board would be when it's done is at posing a true question, not just a performance art, is an example of this process, it has all those components. So we have a website, reflectivepracticeleadership.org, if you want excruciating, and I mean excruciating detail about how we work in these settings and the different applications or at least a sample of that. But I'll describe first our basic science laboratory that is where we develop and work through our methods and this is a seminar for fellows in pediatric hematology oncology. So here's some of the essential structural elements of that. Uh, first, the seminar leadership is led by a diverse group of faculty hematology oncology oncology physicians. I don't lead the seminar. I design and. Facilitate and manage. The principal dancers are the pediatric hemoc docs. Assisted by a facilitator, it could be somebody like me, but anybody can take the role. The facilitator is there to keep the group on track with an established method. The faculty who are selected must model self disclosure and reflection. They have to have that as their skill set and style. And that faculty, and this is key, have to be held in high regard by the fellows. Absolutely essential. Here's the schedule. It's mandatory for our first year fellows to provide protected time, signal the importance in the program. If a fellow is on the inpatient service, the attending with them holds their pagers and manages the calls while the fellows are attending the seminar. And the prompt attendance is essential. It's not like a grand rounds where you can in, Usually ten minutes later, or so after you pull yourself away, this is a, a team effort, and it has to uh, have all those involved assembled at the right time. We do it two times a month for about an hour and fifteen minutes, and it's elective for upper levels. All discussions are confidential, and again, remember this is done with faculty in the same section as the fellows. We, we can talk about that later about the risk-benefit analysis that was in this initial clinical trial, if you said, when we started it. So the contents completely determined by the fellows. There's no preset menu of items, no curriculum in that sense. Fellows are free to talk about any challenging situation they encounter. It could be clinical, research, educational. And we see every challenge the fellows face, contend with as an analogy to what they're going to face in the remainder of their career. And an average about two to four faculty guide the discussions. We now have a squad of eight, fac- eight MD faculty who do the seminar, but we constrain the number of faculty participating at any given time so that they uh, never outnumber the fellows. if We have eight fellows per year in our program. So our method, here's the steps. It usually begins with me uh, saying something like, well, does anybody have a challenging circumstance they'd like to discuss? And then there's usually about a three-minute pause that feels like 10, because people are thinking about, well, should I say this, et cetera, and finally somebody comes up with a circumstance. And it's usually quite complicated, full of detail and um, characters, et cetera, And so after that uh, initial description, we asked the presenter to frame a question. This turns out to be much harder than one might, might imagine. Usually in very, very complicated situations, but to focus the discussion, we asked them to frame a question. And it's always the person who raised the challenging situation who is given primacy in terms of defining the question. Then we have a review of comparable cases. That is, as soon as the person frames the question, how do you do X? Or how does one manage Y? We ask for comparable cases. Everybody in the room, including faculty, are given an opportunity. And the reason why we, uh, we didn't do that initially, but the reason why we insert that is to make it clear that whoever takes the risk of discussing a challenging circumstance, that they're not alone that it's a prototype, and throughout all these years, 19 or so years of doing this, there has only been, I think, one to two occasions where after hearing the case, uh, 80% of the people in the room uh, didn't volunteer analogous cases in one sort or another. And again, it makes it clear to the person presenting, it's not just them, everybody's in the same leaky boat. So we go through then systematic reflection and analysis. What does that really mean? It means unpacking the particular challenging circumstance to understand what factors might be at play. Also analogous, comparable cases, what's the same and what's different. Who are, what's the circumstance of the patient? Who are the services that are involved? What's the family situation like? What's your experience with this, et cetera, et cetera. All the while, trying to keep track of those factors, just as you do when you're reviewing in a patient where you just can't figure out what's going on. Uh, you don't recognize the pattern. You have to, as one article said, ret- quote, retreat to the hypothetical deductive approach. That is, you have to work through all the data, sort it through, and come up with your best guess about what's going on, and that's your work in diagnosis. We do the same thing. What's your best guess? And then based on that, what are your plans for strategic action? This is the leadership piece. Like, what do you do? How do you guide the child? How do you guide the family? How do you guide your colleagues through this circumstance? And then we do a brief evaluation, which is asking the person who raised the case as a representative, was this useful? If so, how, if not, why not? and then the faculty stay after for a faculty review. And what we do there is we review, were we on method or were we not? And it's public. The fellows can stay and watch the faculty review their uh, action in the seminar. It's in part, It's been a very important step. And it's, as she said, when we go off method, if you will, which is not terribly infrequent, it's not viewed as a mistake it's viewed as a question like, why did we get off track with this rather seemingly straightforward method? Uh, And what we've discovered is that each time we went off track, went off method, it's because the case was so provocative to the faculty that they got pulled into the discussion in a way that was out of order with the sequence. Does that make sense? It It means the case, the circumstances that were represented there, are still a challenge for the faculty. And it's good for the fellows to witness the faculty struggle with understanding how to manage education. So some example challenges, and I'll talk a little bit more about how these categories were developed, but they sh- should seem pretty transparent. Here's some sample questions. Again, remember, we do it the same way every time. What's a challenging circumstance? Frame the question. Here are examples of uh, that. those questions. <coughs> sorry in the clinical role you can read some of those for example how do you break devastating news relapse terminal condition be there for the family and not let it get to you father wants to do everything the mother doesn't she the patient is going to die and it's not going to be pretty and I love the, fir- the last one, <laughs> first session of a, a given year. Does anybody else feel stupid? <laughs> classic, a classic. Another dimension, personal role and professional boundaries. We don't really hear about how our respective families are reacting to our work. Do you attend the funerals of patients? How do you deal with a family who puts excessive demands on us? How do you manage the impact of grief on yourself as a provider and on your own family? The academic role, and again, it's probably very clear to you that I'm a big fan of Socrates uh, in this method, not so much Aristotle. Uh, and I happened to get a uh, Instagram photo of, of uh, Socrates getting the news from the Promotions Committee. <laughs> 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 Here's my future. okay, the academic role. We have discussed how to manage night call. How can we bring these issues forward in the program? Uh, how do you negotiate for change from a position of less power in the organization? How do you address and respond to behavior that is maybe unprofessional, maybe not, but is not good for the team, etc.? When you're in a position of lower authority, here's an example of how something that can appear at the moment to be uh, particular to a fellow status, but there's always going to be that issue. How do you raise these sort of challenging political issues from a position of relatively less authority? We always have people in higher authority to us. Research role. Never done any basic research. How do you choose projects? How do you know what to bet on? First year was demanding but rewarding. Now I'm going into the lab and I know less than the technicians. I don't think I'm cut out for basic science if I don't pursue this. Can I still have a worthwhile career in academic medicine? So those are samples. So we do, and uh, I'll I'll, uh, preempt the obvious criticism that's gonna (laughs) come. We use self-report measures. They're quick, easy, cheap. We could do better and we'd like to try in terms of other objective measures, but what we basically do is ask our fellows in an anonymous survey, about two months after the year ends, to go through and rate themselves, uh, do a double rating on a given set of tasks or capabilities, and rate where they think they were skill-wise on that task before the seminar, and trying to think of the impact of the seminar because they've been through a lot. Uh, the first year is really grueling, and then to rate where they are on that skill relative to the impact of the seminar. And I'll briefly go through these. These are in your handout, so I won't. Uh, Bore you with running through the details. These have to do with the initial goals of the seminar, understanding the impact on the child in a way that's helpful, the family, on medical professionals, in a way that will enhance my ability to experience positive professional and personal development over the course of my career, my ability to exert effective leadership, reflect on and analyze complicated situations, and positive working relationships. and this is based on all these are on an end of 72 fellows who've gone through this. So these are some questions that deal particularly with tragedy, which is a, uh, not, uh, it's a, a core part of the, the practice of HEMA. There's a lot of hope, there's a lot of tragedy. Uh, how do you guide uh, children and families through this? And so the fellows think that it helps them understand the response of the family, their colleagues communication, et cetera. So I had I got curious about the ACG ME co- core competencies. This the they, the competency project emerged after we initiated these seminars. So I looked at the competencies um, and it turns out that the concepts of reflection, reflective practice and leadership are embedded across the core competencies. So I just extracted some of the items to see if the fellows thought there was impact on their core competencies. And so patient care, those were the ones where the constructs overlapped. Practice based learning, interpersonal and communication skills, and professionalism. And again, you have these in your handouts. So anyway, again, I think it's because reflection, leadership, et cetera, embedded in these constructs themselves that the fellows recognized an impact there. We have an IRB approved or reviewed educational research protocol where we record all the sessions and allows us for study. So what we did as an example, uh, those topics, the questions, we looked at 222 of these seminars over time and tried to develop a taxonomy of what the challenges were that were typically reported by the Hemant Fellows first year and here's where those categories came from. So you see the clinical role and then some examples uh, within each category. Relations with patients and families, relations with other professionals, relations with the service, etc., then the personal role, and professional boundaries, academic role, research role. So here's the percentage in each category out of 222 so you can see that, again, the primary target audience is first year fellows, it is a clinical year, so it makes sense that the first two categories cover 85% of the seminar topics. But typically as they go through the remainder of the year and they're looking towards the second, third, and in our program, fourth year, research begins to, to come up, how do you choose mentorship, et cetera. So I got curious about these and we looked at the clinical role. And we looked further through all these categories, but what I found really striking was the percentage within this cluster. Why don't you guess what the percentage is? Everybody had a chance to look at what the items are? Okay, try to guess what what the percentages are. So the basic breakout is this. 92% are the first two categories. I was surprised that 30% of the topics that pertain to the clinical role had to do with relations with colleagues. So I thought that was significant. Right? And it led to another research project on conflict between physicians that we won't have time to talk about today. So we're, for the past three years, doing a little bit of a modification of a clinical trial. My boss and I have been debating the practice of uh, having the faculty and the meeting uh, and the tension that might produce because it might lead fellows who have a issue that they'd like to raise, but they're concerned about, for example, if somebody, not even uh, one of the faculty seminar, but a close associate, they're having a run-in with, and they'd like to discuss that in a seminar, they might reasonably feel some hesitancy about bringing it up if they know there's, or at least imagine, there's a close connection. So we have developed a schedule for the, this is the third year we see the, the uh, orange this is the whole schedule. The standard seminars are the ones represented in white. For the orange, I do the seminar alone without MD faculty note. I didn't mention this, but at any time and even before this, fellows could always request a meeting without faculty. Or they could request a meeting with some subset of faculty. For example, if they had an issue about how the hematology consultation service was operating, they could request that only the a uh, specialist attend. And the, fa- the faculty who do the seminar with me are fine with that. They want to provide those opportunities. So what we, we've been doing it this way. And at the end uh, of each of those seminars, I've been asking the fellows, was this a topic that was better discussed without MD faculty colleagues, or would it have been better with them? There's only been over, there's now three years, Two sessions where the fellows said, yeah, on balance, it was good that they weren't here, made it a little easier, but none have been, oh yes, definitely we shouldn't have had MD faculty here. So we'll see going forward. I think this is, uh, frankly, my own opinion, a lost opportunity to build in a structure like this that requires MD faculty not to participate. I'm more in favor of having the fellows just say, let's do this one by ourselves. It's been our methods have been translated to other organizations. One of our uh, f- uh, colleagues who did his fellowship and was a faculty with us translated it over to MD Anderson. The other interesting thing he did is that he piloted. He did, he got recruited out uh, uh, before it could be completed. began to pilot the application to PhD students, postdocs, to offer them the same opportunity to reflect on. Their role and the challenges as uh, they were going through the development of their academic credentials. This is an interesting application of some. As some of you in the audience might know Dr. Widness, a uh, neonatologist uh, at the University of Iowa. He translated the basic methods into a program that's of a much more normal scale. I mean, we have, like I said, we have eight fellows a year, so we're able to do these seminars uh, within specialties, et cetera. The Iowa program has one or two fellows per specialty per year, so instead of an intra-specialty fellowship uh, seminar, they do it for all their first years uh, on a monthly basis, and it worked well. They combined it also with an orientation period that gave them workshops on self you might say uh, self-support methods like mindfulness etc and then went into this seminar. So there's a lot of ways to combine the basic methods. I'll run through very briefly some sample applications. This is not the complete list but just to give you a feel for how things were translated. Uh, In that list of uh, credits at the beginning is the name of a person Jan Drutz who's a wonderful generalist uh, pediatrician who did his training at Baylor and developed a highly successful private practice but was recruited back to develop the generalist track of the Department of Pediatrics programming, uh, residency programming and when he came back he, uh, you thought he'd had very good training at Baylor but there were some aspects where he felt he wished he had had more preparation and one was how often he felt and how important it was to guide children and families through tragedy. And so, for example, being the the pediatrician, first pediatrician to take care of a newborn, follow the child through adolescence, and then have the child suffer a, a, a a fatal car accident, and how that impacted him personally and his work with the family, and he thought, we should help our, our residents better prepare for that so he knew hemlock had a lot of that aspect in their role and so he approached our section and we developed a brief seminar that all, all interns rotate through hemlock, uh, uh during their first year we do a uh, uh, it's not really a seminar i show up and i ask i, I invite one of the hematology faculty and the fellow they're working with to have a conversation with the residents, and I asked three questions. The most important question, the first two are just to give them a chance to eat if they've got lunch really. Hi, how are you doing? The, The principal question is based on what you've observed in this rotation and in other experiences, what have you learned about this aspect of the role? What are good examples and what are negative examples? Because you know we learn as much by negative example as by positive. And then what do you have questions about? What have you seen or observed but you really don't know how it, how it works? And then it's whatever the residents want to talk about and it's really to, again, principal part of the method, engage the more experienced uh, colleagues with the residents in talking about how do you guide children and families uh, through this and here's uh, a bit of the general themes that come up in the conversation and again these are principally interns so uh, the themes are transition to a clinical role in the care of seriously ill kids, the dread of dying children, increased responsibility, volume, complexity, how do you manage ambiguity is a uh, recurring more than others, recurring theme: not knowing how do you uh, work with families where the path ahead is not at all clear, and surprised at how resilient the children and families are. Another question: How do you maintain meaningful interpersonal relations with the uh, patients given the pace and the volume of work and the complexity of these tasks? How do you share threatening diagnoses, and how do you the answer? And this is really important: How do you answer the questions directly? From that children have about death and dying. That's really not talked about. It's, it's interesting, if I were to conduct a <coughs> seminar and just say, you know, what are you learning? What do you have questions about? And I, t- and I time the speech, 95% of it would be about how do I work with parents? How do I guide parents? Very little time about how do I work directly with the children as a Does that make sense? So it's an opportunity to unpack that and it's some of the most interesting conversations where the, essentially the, the faculty have posed the questions, how do you, if the child's seven years old, very, very bright, uh, begins to ask you questions of not just what's gonna happen or what's wrong with me, am I gonna die? How do you manage that kind of thing? So we briefly, at the end of each of these seminars, I just hand out a sheet of paper, close my eyes, and ask them to to rate utility on a five-point scale. So we've done it now with about 900 uh, residents, again, it's a very simple, I think, design. And here's the questions we ask them to rate. And here's their uh, percentage of uh, agree or strongly agree that this was a useful uh, conversation to have with their senior, uh, more experienced colleagues. Does that make sense? So, and we asked some open-ended questions, and the common responses are is they, they really appreciate having an opportunity to reflect on their personal experiences as they're going through it, right? I mean, it's one thing to do workshops, seminars and all that, but to embed it in the actual practice when they're living makes, I think a much stronger impact. And the most frequent, I'm not getting the way about any other comments, most frequently noted piece of this for how, what's useful is hearing the internal operations of their experienced colleagues. Again, it's like ordinarily they, it's like watching a duck swim. You know when you see this gliding performance, but you never see the feet pattern in here. To get an opportunity to sort of peek behind the curtain with uh, an experienced colleagues. And all the suggestions were about, uh, well, we should do more of this in the curriculum. So we have been doing this a while and then the department asked Jan and I, Jan Drutz, to design a workshop on delivering bad news for all second year residents and we have now it's about 60 residents per class. And so in the original design. We didn't have any money to do this sort of stuff, so we would just do improvisational theater, really. We'd have scripts, but the residents would take turns playing the role of parents, and it worked well enough. In fact, we joked about having awards for best actor each year out of the residency group. But in uh, 2011, uh, Texas Children's opened a wonderful new simulation center and they asked us to to come and design the the first course for the simulation center on this topic. So the question is, okay, 60 residents. So that's a a financial and logistical challenge, right? How do you move, how do you give 60 residents all a, a, a similar experience in two, three hour blocks? The reason why it had to be done that way is that they set aside a professional development day, and they said, "Oh, we'll slot you in at the beginning, but you have to do it in two. We have to cover a whole squad in two, two times. Right? Get the picture. Get the logistical picture. So here's what we came up with: is a, a reflective practice in groups, which everything we do is in groups, not individually oriented. So. On the appointed day, residents are assigned to one of four learning groups or teams, each with the assistance of hopefully a pair of faculty facilitators. Over time, we've managed to uh, recruit enough faculty to fully staff this operation, each time with eight faculty being comprised of pairs of specialists in general. So, the faculty facilitating pair, to give a picture, is a subspecialist and a generalist pediatrician. And we have other people like myself in management roles. But the residents are assigned to four learning groups. And each group, not individual, has a team encounter with the simulated patient. And I, it's not standardized. It's simulated. So here's the schedule. There's no didactics no lectures, we used to do lectures, I even produced a video, and we kept on evaluating it and found that, and I don't think it's just because of my production values, but that didactics really added nothing uh, to the resident's experience of the workshop. So the instructors and the uh, actors meet set up. I do a plenary orientation which is mainly logistical. They're assigned to those teams, and then there's four simulated encounters. Each team has four encounters. There's a break, a plenary review. And that's it. Here's the phases of the encounters, like a play in three acts. There's the pre-encounter preparation, where the team reviews case information. Whole group explores how to approach such cases. And then the residents are randomly assigned to conduct encounters. I think your handout, I had an older slide in there where they volunteered, that was a mistake. We did that a couple of times at the beginning. But it's more efficient and more, I think, I should say, a better sample if they're randomly assigned. Then there's the encounter. That is the representative goes in and has the encounter. The rest of the group watches over closed circuit TV. And the observing group reflects on what they're witnessing. They reflect on the implications for their own practice. Then the actor and the representative comes back and they briefly, and I mean briefly, describe their experience. And then the observers, that is the rest of the team, discuss what was triggered as they watched this performance. What was triggered as they reflected on their own practice? What did they think in these situations? What did they do and why did they do it? and then the group moves to the next observation, okay? Total time, 24 minutes. Here's the schedule, for example. There's four learning groups. Learning group one rotates station one, two, three, four, each a different case. That's the whole schedule. And the key points here again, there's no evaluation. There's no checklist. The standardized pay, the actors are given detailed scripts, rehearsals, But the primary task of the actor is not to produce exactly the same performance. They're to do their best job of responding as they imagine they would if they were in the real situation, depending on how the the resident interacts with them. No checklists, no grades. And it's contrast for a lot of them with other standardized like simulation approaches. And the actors too, it took them a long time because they do this for several, the medical schools in the area, different programs to shift away from giving critique to the individual to interacting with the observing team. And the encounters are designed to help everyone, including the faculty, reflect on their practice. So briefly, here's the outcome measures. We've done this with this design, now with about 300 residents. The larger number is including the, the way we used to do it before, and I don't report those statistics, but I'm not sure there's a lot of difference. So again uh, here's the outcomes Um, are you familiar with basic principles Uh, the way to break the news of an unexpected death and by the way unexpected death is not one of the scenarios we use and I'll explain why we included that item I know how to break the news uh, to a parent where their child has died or is dying after uh, years of struggling with a chronic illness and how to break the news of a serious medical error. Know how to react to a parent who's very hostile, who's overwhelmed, and my, how my own emotional responses can uh, affect my management. We did a one-year follow-up with a sample of about 83 of the residents. That is, we went back a year after the the workshop, and we asked them, "Did you participate in the workshop? If so, uh, did you have?" these types of encounters during the intervening year, and if so, was a workshop helpful? And this is the utility rate, and you'll notice the lower utility, relatively lower utility rating for breaking uh, the news of an unexpected death. Again, that wasn't part of the workshop, but I think there was some generalization of that through the discussions. So, other applications. Again, if you take sort of our basic method, it can be hybridized, combined with other approaches, depending on the task, et cetera. So we've recently, over the last, I think, four years, been asked to help, uh, uh, you might say, redesign ethics education for a couple of our fellowships, first for critical care fellows, and then once we worked out the model there, the people who run cardiology wanted it for their fellows, and these are our colleagues who work with us. And so here's the design. What I'm showing you now, and I think this is in your handout, is Baylor has developed and it's published, I think I could look it up for you if you're interested, a standardized uh, protocol for an ethics workup. It's called the Baylor Workup. And it's essentially, for a given case, working through the classic categorical ethical appeals to come out with some you might say factor analysis of the ethical issues at hand. And what we've done is wrap that procedure into our normal reflective practice strategy. That is, you'll recognize fellow begins with presentation of a case, and instead of that, you know, the challenging case, instead of the framing of the question is a framing of the primary ethical dilemma that the fellow and, and their team is experiencing but then the same process applies, if that makes sense. Comparable cases, clarification. And what we've noticed here is the review of comparable cases is there's an additional dimension of importance to that because what that allows is really questioning is the case really comparable or not? Does it have, do the factors, the differences have ethical relevance, for example, does the uh, is the child uh, uh, have any kind of the, the level of cognitive capability that should automatically trigger a sin, As an example, uh, the uh, legal status of the custody of the child, et cetera. Et cetera. and a, a number of things. I'm not a, a I'm not. And my appointment in the ethics center is because of the educational piece. I'm not a trained ethicist, but you get you get the picture. So after the analysis, the uh, whole group of fellows are invited to suggest specific plans of action based on that factor analysis that you might say the working diagnosis. Consider alternatives and plans for preventative ethics, which has been a very interesting piece of the outcome Here is. I'm sure you know what uh, familiar with the term, preventative ethics, is what can be done to address the circumstances that produce this, these, this ethical dilemma for the future. And several of the issues, it's a confidential seminar, but with permission of the group, several of the issues have actually been translated into policy initiatives for the hospital to contend with the ethical issues that have been uh, discussed in the seminar. If time permits the floor becomes open to uh, other non-moderating faculty in this design there's three three moderating faculty there's a facilitator role right the methods person there's a content expert a critical care doc and then an ethics person and so part of the reason we had to do this and the reason why we were invited is they were having a hard time with their ethics seminars because the cases were so provocative they couldn't regulate their faculty's input into the ethics discussion. They never got to a conclusion. So we limit the involvement of the faculty, uh, (coughs) non-moderating faculty, until the end so that the fellows get a chance primarily to work through this process. Another project we're working on now uh, that's led by Dr. Helston is trying to apply these uh, general principles to the care of very, very complex cases that involve multiple specialties, where there's opportunities for collision. Oh, we're running out of time. So I'm gonna stop with one last step. Most exciting thing we're doing now is partnering with our uh, Baylor Pediatric, International Pediatric AIDS Initiative they have uh, uh, AIDS programs for low-income countries around the world. They have 300,000 children in HIV care and have as good a success rate outcomes as we have in the United States. Uh, The outcomes for kids with cancer in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example here in the United States 80 percent of kids diagnosed with pediatric cancer survive. In Africa only 10 percent. We have the opportunity through partnering with the BPI network and a large grant from bristol myers Squibb and philanthropic efforts. We're gonna expand our pediatric hematology programming throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. It's called Global Hope. This is a picture of a cancer celebration in Botswana about a month ago that I found delightful. And we're doing the first uh, pediatric hemon fellowship outside of, sub- outside of South Africa in Sub-Saharan Africa going to do one on the east of Africa, one on the west, and I'm so honored to-